it, it basically turns into me complaining about Disney Plus not being here yet, which I think I've done on the podcast at least once before. So many times, Liz. Yeah. We could, we could like, have a checklist at the beginning of the podcast that says this podcast message is available to Disney Plus. Um, what's wrong with the Marvel Universe? Um, Octothor Bingo! Weetabix, it's also gone dark, if you know, while we were doing the podcast. Look, right, I've been very, I've been very good about not noticing that because <laughs> I have nearly commented like three times. All right, no, John, don't do it. I literally had not noticed until Liz mentioned it. Oh, God. Hello everyone and welcome to the 24th episode of Octothorpe, which will be coming out on the 4th of February 2021. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. And we are coming to you uh, with some letters of comment. So uh, first up, we have Duncan McGregor, who tweeted at us to reassure us that he quite likes discussing convention finances. Um, so we're glad that it wasn't just Claire, Mark and Alison. And me and Liz, obviously, we loved it. One thing he says is that he has been finding that there is, um, he, he has been finding that lockdown means he's quite screened out or zoomed out. And so he finds conventions that are very screen heavy, very difficult because it's an awful lot of screens all at once. And something I realize is that we don't discuss the more distributed um, events as much on this podcast. I noted in my reply to him, mainly because they don't go as catastrophically wrong and require our comment. There is the first Thursday Zoom meeting, which happens on the first Thursday of the month and is for the kind of replacement for the physical first Thursday that's held in London. Uh, Sheffield fandom have a regular Zoom, which you can find on the anonymous Claire uh, Discord server and on the Sheffield fandom Facebook group. Um, and there's also a series of panels from Essence of Wonder, who are doing kind of weekly weekend panels, which are just a single panel, which you can watch with some interesting topics and whatnot. Um, unfortunately, the Endless Wonder, pa- Wonder panels very often conflict with things I already have in my calendar, so I haven't actually gotten to one yet, um, but they have done some really interesting stuff. So if anyone out there is in Duncan's boat where they don't want to go to a whole convention worth of screens, but they wouldn't mind kind of dipping their toe in occasionally, then um, yeah, check the show notes because I put some links. Um, there's also different sorts of screens. So I've now seen quite a lot of buzz about running parties or events in Google Sheets. Um, I have been to one of these and it didn't quite work for me, but I think it's an interesting model. There are also things you can do that are more audio-based rather than video-based. Um, and getting mm. getting your Zoom kit out of your study is quite useful as well, so that you can kind of sit around in your living room watching watching things, which is something that we're quite familiar with. I know it's all still screens. I find I am listening to slightly fewer podcasts because I used to listen to podcasts on my way to work and I no longer leave the house and go to work all the time. But I find podcasts to be actually quite a nice way of keeping up with people and, you know, just listening to people chat about stuff um, in a way that was sometimes filled by, you know, sitting at the back of a convention panel. And often they're not particularly visual anyway. So I'm quite happy to have that all happen sort of just as an audio thing I can listen to whenever I like. And the second thing I would like to say is, you had a party in Google Sheets. Please explain. They exist. There's a there's been a serious article about doing this. So it's not just 
amongst our friends. Explain what it is, because at the moment it sounds like you're basically making some sort of flip book out of Google Sheets where you're color coding each cell to be a pixel and you're like going through the sheet very quickly to simulate video. And I assume that's not it, but that's the only thing I can think of. No, but you've correctly identified part of it, which is that... (laughs) How? Often one of the tabs will be a coloring thing where people are creating collaborative art by filling in the colors of cells then they do puzzles in places then they hang out in places because i really like spreadsheets but i'd not considered trying to have a party in one going back to what allison said about having your zoom rig outside of your study i do wonder to what extent people's screened outness is a um more to do with kind of worked out and i think one of the things i've learned in lockdown is that being able to segregate your workspace from your personal space is very important and one way to do that is moving your zooms out of your study um i find that um i am getting better at context switching as i spend more time doing it i'm getting better on the weekends at not thinking about work and i'm getting better during the workday at not thinking about leisure product projects um but i think there's something to be said for trying to achieve that kind of separation of of um work screen time and and home screen time and that might also be something to look at um but having said that i you know it is also very possible to be um to be screened out in general um and i'm glad that our podcast provides a a kind of uh solution to that in some small way so um glad to hear you're enjoying it still uh duncan yeah, I think I'm very aware that while I can have basically a room that is my office for work that I can afford to devote entirely to work and then still have, you know, the rest of my flat for non-work things, it is a lot more difficult from a lot of people who cannot segregate their living space like that. And I think in the early days when I was using one room as kind of my office and bedroom, that that was part of the problem because I didn't want to go and sit in there and then watch a convention panel because I'd already been sitting there, you know, working for eight hours mm, yeah but i think we are all lucky enough to have a study in the octothorpe team uh, i have issues with shared space i don't have a room of my own as virginia wolf would say but it's my own fault because i have a five-bedroomed house so if we had our <laughs> act together <laughs> yes let's move on to claire Briley's lock um so Claire says that Alison will be relieved to know that it was Luncon in 1957 uh, that the winner of the fanzine Hugo had three editors. Um, so it's not Plockter's fault, it's Science Fiction Times' fault, edited by James V. Tarassi Sr., Ray Van Houten and Frank R. Prieto Jr. I have two things to say about this. The first is I was just talking about the rockets. I was literally talking about the trophies. I knew that there had been more things it's the it's the matter of giving away more than one trophy and then three or more trophies but also it turns out from discussions in joff on facebook that it wasn't really about the trophies or the amount of space on the powerpoint at all it's about invitations to the reception and to the hugo losers party and to other events surrounding the hugos that that is the thing that seems to be the big constraint here so it is it is who gets to be in the room where it happens well and and and, and, and as i think we discovered uh as, as as i think i said last time um world cons have had a policy of basically saying you can have as many rockets as you like but above some level we will charge you the cost for the rocket which i think is a enormously kind of fair and fine way to, to handle that particular aspect of the thing i think i can see where they're coming from in that the hugo reception i've been to a couple of hugo receptions as either an ex 
accept us plus one, or I think as a member of the Luncon committee. I enjoyed going to them, but I wouldn't say it was necessary for me to have gone to them or the person who I was the guest of the acceptor needed me there for support particularly. So you probably could cut down the guest list a little bit by just taking a firmer line on some of that. Uh, For instance, you often have the committee there. You might have the committee there because some of them are possibly accepting for finalists where there isn't a designated acceptor. And you could possibly cut that down by having fewer people to do that. So you just have like one designated acceptor for everyone who is not there in person. But I think that wouldn't make a serious dent in the numbers. It, It probably is the fact that you could have an awful lot of nominees who all bring a plus one. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the solution is, but I'm not sure the best way is to say, well, you can only bring two people. Claire notes that Terry Carr and Ron Ellick won a Hugo for Fanac, and they decided that they would swap it back and forth at successive world cons in elaborate and public ways at room parties and thus get to award and receive it over and over again. And Claire notes that her and Mark intended to follow in their footsteps with their first nova um but obviously anyone who has seen claire and mark's enormous nova collection uh will know that that did not quite go entirely to plan that's not the reason it didn't go to plan (laughs) presumably the passing back and forth became no longer necessary at some point along with the nova because they had to remove their no shagging disclaimer from their fanzine Well, no, because it also wouldn't make sense to take the truck of 40 Novas to every convention. No, no, no. <laughs> That's not... They they formed a household. They stopped living in separate households. There, but there's no reason that I couldn't present Espana with a rocket at a convention. That is quitter talk. And if that's why, Mark and Claire, if that's genuinely why you didn't do it, shame on you. You should be. That's not a good enough excuse. So you're saying that they should have a room party at a convention where we can have conventions in real life. In fact, they could do this on Zoom. And they should award each other their entire collection of notes. In fact, we can do this on Zoom and I'm throwing down the gauntlet. Mark and Claire, you should pass your banana wings Nova's back and forth to each other because they basically be in their two little pods on zoom and they could move from they could basically one of them could move from one room to the other with a nova and then an audit and then they could reverse the process and it would be funny they don't need to be in different rooms they just need to be sat next to each other on zoom and the nova passes from one little zoom window to the next zoom window oh oh no that's great that's that that's oh in fact that's such so good i do want to do a bit where we pass the hugo <laughs> to each other on zoom um i need to sort that out with mike and steve hang on their separate zoom webcams are both attached to desktop computers i should send them a mac <laughs> yes i'm sure that'll go well uh, the next logical step in the Weetabix saga is for Alison to just start sending people computers. Like, where else did we think this would end up? I think if any of us had thought about it, we'd have been like, Alison will definitely start sending just random computers to people. I, I've been thinking about it, but what happened is that Zoom stopped working on these very old Macs. And I think it is now working again, but you need to do a bit of a futz with it. And I haven't done that. But indeed, I have quite a lot of Macs that would run zoom and i have quite a lot of people who are kind of like i can't go on zoom because i don't have a computer who can run it and yeah it's a plan you like the zoom fairy another letter of comment came from mark Plummer, um who also discussed uh the hugos and um 
he tells an anecdote. He, he talks quite a lot about the Hugos in general, but he discusses an anecdote at the end of his email um, where he says, a better example of what it all means was in Spokane. Um, somebody was handing out, I voted in the Hugos ribbons, and someone who was there, uh, who I didn't know, but was just like a fan who was present, said, what's a Hugo? And um, he's like, it felt to me that fandom had been saturated in debate about the Hugos since Easter, especially because this was the year of the puppies. And then there was someone who was interested enough to be at the world con to have joined and to attend and then not to know what the Hugos were. And so he kind of, I I thought it was a great story because it points out that what the the Hugos have a disproportionate um, level of discussion, but I would, it would be interesting to know what percentage of the people who attend a world con know what the Hugos are. Cause obviously at the level that they're listening to a podcast about science fiction, uh, you're probably more likely to know, but I do wonder like if you're just someone who kind of wanders in off the street, like you might not. And I don't have a good feeling for how, glued together the two concepts are in in the head of the attend the average attendee um because i'm appreciative i am at one end of that bell curve i could have looked up but have not yet how many people vote in the hugos each year maybe that would be a useful way of doing this um mark also said and i apologize if you've said this already and i wasn't paying attention (laughs) (laughs) is that mark saying that or you Alison? me Mark also said that the episode was much enhanced, for him at least, because we rarely talked about gaming this time. Does that mean we need to institute Video Game Corner? <laughs> no, I just thought it was funny. I, you know, <laughs> I, I, I'm saying it for the podcast because I think it's funny. Moving on to Chris Garcia's letter of comment. He says, wonderful episode and perhaps the finest use of the... <laughs> in podcast history. Da, da. And then he says, the Hugo thing had a few things that weren't thinged. And that is very true. He is astute. uh, And that is, um, I think, a very good point. He is astute and the world needs stutes. I I just love basically all the phrases in in, in Chris's uh, letters. I won't read them all out, but I do like him saying uh, this is the corneriest of corner cases to go with the few things that weren't thinged. Yep. Yeah. No, he um, he's a he's a wonderful writer. I do love Chris. Discon 3. Discon 3 have announced that they're going to make an announcement, but they haven't yet announced what the announcement is. They've been a little bit more specific. They've announced at some point this weekend they will provide an update on Discon 3 on the survey they sent out um, to say basically, would you attend a virtual or hybrid or real world convention in august or in december and also tell us why they've waited so long to update us i was hoping that by weekend they meant they would do it on saturday then by the time we record we would have the announcement but clearly they meant we'll do it too late in the weekend for optithorpe to comment on it do they not have any thought for the timing of podcasts well i think what this clearly shows is that Worldcon committees are running scared from our incisive commentary uh alison any thoughts those were literally my thoughts <laughs> I had two thoughts, and it was those two thoughts. Oh, excellent! That one was definitely not my thought. They've deliberately left it till Sunday, um, because if you say this weekend, then the parable parable of the unexpected hanging applies, and and they have to do it now today, and we will expect it. And um, I thought, well, they don't want to do it on Saturday because Octothorpe would trenchantly comment on it. And that would be sad. Fully expecting letters of comment from the Discon 3 committee now. Uh, so bring it on, Discon 3. We're ready. <laughs> oh, like, like a Worldcon committee have time to listen to podcasts, John. 
What else do they do when they're typing? I I I know that I might be an anomaly because I think Liz only listens to podcasts when she's not working, but I listen to podcasts while I am working. So for me, the more productive I am, the more listening I do, which is perhaps not common. I cannot multitask in that way. If I try and put a podcast on while I'm working and doing anything other than the kind of, you know, boringest of rote data entry or something, then I'm just not listening to podcast at all. Fair enough. I have different bits of brain. <laughs> and she keeps them in jars, listeners. You heard it here first. <laughs> I do, I do. I cannot listen to a podcast if I'm doing anything that involves processing text. You know, I can't read and listen to a podcast or, or write and listen to a podcast or anything of that sort. But I can absolutely draw and listen to a podcast. Yeah, so. Or, or make badges and listen to a podcast. I can do those things. Discon 3's hotel is having some issues and the owner of the hotel has filed for bankruptcy because Marriott, who operate the hotel, have asked them for a lot of money and they have said, we don't have any money, we're going to file for bankruptcy. Um, and apparently this is not a new piece of news um, because um, we have a link in our show notes uh, linking to a previous discussion of this in various smoffy circles. Um, but yes, it is something that is uh, cromulent, especially because I think Marriott are having financial difficulties at the moment as well, which uh, might partly be because um, we're in a global pandemic. People don't tend to go to hotels. Yeah, so my, uh, I would say that I, I haven't stayed in the Worldcon Hotel the Marriott Wardman Park, but I have stayed in the hotel next door. Um, <clears throat> and they are two really, really big hotels and they are not in the centre of Washington, D.C. They are like a sort of short uh, metro ride outside the centre. So they're perfectly nice, but I can see why um, in a time of reduced travel, they might be having serious problems because it is a very big hotel and it's not right in the centre of D.C. So it might not be the place that is still getting what little business traffic there is. Capricorn and the Filccon, why parasitic conventions are a great model in virtual times. Is that what I said? Yeah. So Capricorn is next weekend. Um, Tammy Coxon is the chair and it is a Chicago convention that I think started as a reaction to more traditional literary Chicago conventions. So it is a convention that has a bit of a party vibe, I believe and a slightly younger crowd than is maybe normal for our traditional SF conventions. Um, and one of the things it's got is a filk track, um, and it's happening next weekend, which is the traditional weekend of the UK FilkCon, which has been running for uh, 32 years. This is the 33rd one, um, and is called Long. was going to be called Long Player, but when they look and realised they'd have to take it virtual. They changed its name to Long Distance Player and they're running it as part of the Filk Track at Capricorn. So if you join Capricorn, which costs $10, you get a free UK FilkCon. And if you were only going to the UK FilkCon, then Capricorn say, just join us at the free rate because Capricorn, and I think this is a brilliant model that we should steal for punctuation too, has two sign-up options on their website. You can either sign up at the $10 rate, three sign-up options. You can sign up at the $10 rate, you can, which is the regular rate. You can sign up at the free rate if you think it's appropriate for you to do so, or you can sign up at the $25 rate um, to support the convention. And I think that's a brilliant model. 
Um, and they've said that UK filkers should sign up at the zero dollar rate because they'll only be coming in to um, listen to the filking. But I'm quite excited to get a little bit of filking in with the rest of the mix. And of course, the filking will start earlier in the day than some of the other stuff that's going on at Capricorn because because they're six hours behind us. And it all seems like a good thing. And conventions could do this more generally and thereby become global conventions without having to have to do all the work of making that happen just by getting people in the other other bits of the world to take responsibility for for their time zones so i was very impressed with all of that and it's next weekend so i will report back in two weeks time i do think the the free or ten dollar or 25 dollar sign up option is very nice i mean we did say for punctuation con that we would comp your membership if that was a problem but then there's like a barrier because people have to email you and say you know this is a hardship which they may not wish to do whereas if we just had a button that said free or a button that said a fiver or a button that said a tenner and if we have any left over it's going to charity then i think it probably would have worked out just as well as it did with just charging everyone a fiver so and then after that boscone and there's going to be a fan fund auction there is going to be a fan fund auction at Boscone. So if you're listening to this and you have things the fan fund might like to sell, then please let us know. And, and it's going to be the same model that we used at Worldcon, where it will be a voice auction on Zoom, work really well. And people will have to additionally pay postage costs from wherever they are, unless the donor has agreed to cover them, which we expect them not to. So so you will get your postage cost back and um yeah so please donate things please come to bosco and bid on them please support the fan funds that sort of stuff what sort of things would the fan funds like to auction and is there anything that you've been auctioning like in pandemic times that you couldn't do at a regular auction or i think well we only on a couple the the auctions are more global so when you're thinking about things to donate um either you, you can restrict them to particular areas but if you're prepared to ship them globally then then thinking about smaller lighter things is better makes sense and, and obviously virtual things people can submit things like tuckerizations or or things of that sort and then finally uh we have been or alison and i have been um, at the podcasting panel at the critical mass uh zoom con this morning um, and we learned about how different people do their podcasts. Um, the people on the panel were Roman Ozanski, Christina Lake, myself, and Terry Frost were on the panel. And I think it went well. Uh, gave some software recommendations, gave some microphone recommendations, talked a little bit about podcasting, how much we love the sounds of our own voices, etc. Um, hopefully everyone enjoyed it. I learned a lot of interesting things. I learned that this never happens has audio issues because Lillian likes to draw when she podcasts, drum her fingers on the table when she podcasts and laughs very loudly. None of which things surprised me at all, but you can see that it would make the edit harder. Well, and also I can see how the, it would make the edit harder because they, they also record it, Lillian records it on her phone and I can imagine that her phone is on the desk next to her drawing. If I draw, my microphone is elevated from my desk so I suspect it wouldn't come up on the mic or if it did, it would be very faint and it would be quite easy to eliminate but I think if you're drawing or doing something on your desk next to your microphone which is also on your desk, yeah, that sounds like a hard edit. I have recorded on my phone um, when I was on holiday um 
and it was a bit trickier because I did sort of have to sit there and be careful not to move or accidentally hit the microphone. Plus, I had to turn the air conditioning off. So as the podcast went on, I was getting warmer and warmer and like, are we done yet? But, you know, it's a trade-off, isn't it? Normally, I don't record on my phone. Um, I just stick a headset on and then throw the audio at John and make him deal with it. But I will say that there is something to be said for recording on your phone because it does kind of democratize the technology a lot because obviously like my microphone and stand cost about 200 pounds which was for me a not too insurmountable amount of money um but like obviously there are people who do not want to invest that in doing a podcast and they you know they don't have to and i think um it's worth saying that although i don't envy the edit process this never happens like it's not like you can tell lillian's drawing uh it's very well edited so um so yeah, like I think that demo- democratization of technology is really good. And it's one of the things that makes podcasting so accessible. Yeah, I mean, I think it's certainly true that you can you can record on your phone and it will be fine. It just may have some extraneous noise. Plenty of professionally produced podcasts that have under tracks under the vocal that make them unlistenable for me. Thank you very much to Roman for inviting me on the panel. So the other thing I learned from this is that some of the podcasters like to have a beer at their side while they're podcasting i mean i would like to but it is 11 30 in the morning here and i've got to clean the kitchen after i do this so it seems like a bad thing yeah no but but if we podcasted at eight in the evening do you think we'd do it with a beer at our sides i might have one i mean i think i think liz would be annoyed <laughs> uh, so there's that if if we podcast eight in the evening i would not have a beer at my side because it would be 3 a.m and then let's let's think about the future times when liz is in the uk for some reason and and we're podcasting oh, listen i have podcasted with a beer have you not noticed it's possible that liz is more sensible when drinking <laughs> i might have one beer I, I can't imagine having a few beers while podcasting i can i can imagine having a couple I think um, I can imagine having as much beer as I can imagine during an Eastercon panel, which is usually I don't want to be absolutely laddered. But if I had one and I get another one at the green room, that seems like an acceptable amount. I think by the time you're up to like three or four, you might have slightly misjudged. It might be time to calm down. Um, So, yes. Uh, And also, I think Roman said he drinks wine. And that's dangerous because wine is stronger. So so I've been drinking beer that I get sent by claire and mark of croydon and some of those beers have been as strong as wine including one they sent me I, yeah yep 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 that was called very big moose and was 12 percent which which is basically wine wine strength yeah they sent us a 12 percent one uh for christmas as well which i enjoyed uh but is not what i'd choose for podcasting i wouldn't have a syrupy imperial stout for podcasting i'd have like a 3.8 percent session pale octothorpe the podcast of science fiction fandom and beer yeah i mean when i say i'm drinking beer on the podcast usually i am drinking a cold lager with ice in it whoa I mean, you didn't tell us you were a heathen, Liz. <laughs> this is a hell of a way to find out, live on air. If I was in Thailand, I'd be drinking cold lager with ice in it too. Exactly. This is the thing I'd always thought was an abomination. And then I realised when it's very hot, you want a nice cold gin and tonic or you want a sort of cold, quite light lager with optionally some ice in it. Or sometimes here they will actually like get the beer out of the fridge and put it straight into a glass they've taken out of the freezer. That's quite good as well. I can understand that. Um, I think, I think, and having like those funny freezable 
rocks that you put in it's just diluting the lager i'm not sure i would i would although having said that if it's if it's, if it's very very hot um i will say when i went to mike and flick's wedding um the bartender asked me two questions when i ordered my london pride one of which made me very happy and the other made me very sad the first one he asked was would you like ice with that and the manager behind him very quickly <laughs> tapped him on the shoulder and said no you don't do that that's not how it works but then he said would you like one bottle or two and i was like Two, two, two bottles of beer, better than one bottle of beer. Thank you. And then I wandered around with my two bottles of beer. And then I had more beer. And then I nearly spilled some beer on Flick's wedding dress, which would have been a faux pas. But I didn't. And that's why I'm not dead. I am thinking about the film Ice Cold in Alex, um, which I'm going to spoil for you now. Do we have a spoiler klaxon? Bah. There's the final scene of which involves the hero drinking his ice cold beer and and the beer in question is Carlsberg. It's possibly the finest example of product placement in in the history of films. But that's a very good example of somebody drinking a cold beer when they've been quite hot. Surely it's not as good an example of the product placement in the Italian job, which was for Fiat bewilderingly. Were they kind of demonstrating what amazing breaks Fiat had? <laughs> They couldn't get Mini to sponsor the movie, but they could get Fiat. So if you watch the Italian job, every car that is not one of the Minis is a Fiat. But that's not what you're looking at. So I don't understand why Fiat sponsored the movie. Like, it's not like you come out of the Italian job thinking, I want a Panda. That's not how it works. You are Mini. That is strange. It is very odd. The other thing that fandom has been beginning to discuss over the last fortnight is what we are going to nominate for Hugo's or uh, more in the circles I've been moving in, what I need to read to know what I'm going to nominate uh, for Hugo's slash what I'm going to read to get a leg up on the eventual finalists slate. So the reason this is a good time to discuss this is that Hugo nominations opened four days ago. Um, and you can nominate Pop Pickers if you're a member of Discon 3 or if you're a member of Conzealand. And I think if you are, they will have sent you an email because I forgot I was a member of Conzealand. And so I was quite surprised to get the Hugo nominations to open email. So there you go. Yay. Um, so um, I pitched this question uh, to the third row mailing list and Abigail Nussbaum gave me some pointers and then when Liz asked, Neil chimed in. So, you know, screw you, Neil. <laughs> he doesn't listen to the podcast so I can say that. Unless someone dobs me in on the third row Discord. Don't you dare, Hog. I'm watching you. Uh, right, so the first... going to get dobbed in for that. <laughs> the first book I read for my Hugo reading was The Vanished Birds by Simon Jimenez, uh, which is a fantastic book I would recommend reading. And I'm currently reading The Doors of Eden by Adrian Tchaikovsky, which was um, one of the shortlist for the Philip K. Dick Award and is also very good. Um, the other books that I'm kind of seriously considering reading are Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson, um, Piranesi by Susanna Clarke, Harrow the Ninth by Tamsin Muir, Vagabonds by Hao Jingfang, translated by Ken Liu, Network Effect by Martha Wells, A Deadly Education by Naomi Novik, The Once and Future Witches by Alex E. Harrow, and then reluctantly, because I think it's got a good chance of ending up on the finalists' ballot, but is my wife reliably informed me that it's very not good, is The City We Became by N.K. Jemison. 
Um, so yeah, th- those are kind of the the books that I am imminently intending to read because I think there is a fair chance they might end up on the final ballot. And I'm kind of a book and a half into my reading so far. Um, anyone else doing any Hugo reading? Uh, so I, I will say that I have read uh, The Vanished Birds, uh, which I picked up entirely on the strength of Abigail Nussbaum's glowing review of it. And I thought it was extremely good as well. Um, it feels to me like... A tiny bit like it will appeal to the people who liked books by Becky Chambers, but it works for me in a way that the Becky Chambers books completely do not. I've also read uh, Piranesi by Susanna Clarke, which I did like but hasn't stuck with me that much. But I think it is a very kind of clever and lovely little book, and I'll not be sad to see that on the shortlist. Uh, I'm surprised to hear people not liking Dan K. Jemison because I've liked most of her books. So I'll probably have to read that myself to decide, but that is already on my list. And Network Effect is Murderbot, right? Yep, yep, yep. So I read the first Murderbot novella and when it was nominated for a Hugo a few years ago and liked it, but never picked up the rest. So maybe now is the time to go and pick up the rest of them. I will say two things, which is firstly, um, Hispania also likes N.K. Jemison's work in general, um, but The City We Became is a a novel that has been expanded from a short story, and basically Hispania felt that it very much did not need to be expanded, and the expansion added nothing of note. Um, And that is, I I can see how that might give you um, structural problems. I will also strongly disagree or maybe not strongly disagree, I think The Vanished Birds is nowhere near as optimistic as Becky Chambers. So if you're a fan of Becky Chambers because of the term hope punk, then do not read The Vanished Birds assuming that that is what you're getting because you will very much be disappointed. But I still think it is. it does share a lot of things in common that are not perhaps the inherent optimism of Chambers' work. Which is say, you are absolutely correct that the, the, the Vanished Birds does not have the sort of hopeful, optimistic uh, aspects that the Chambers did. But I think the problem was I didn't like the hopeful, optimistic aspects of it because it felt like it kind of almost forced it into a plot corner where everything ended in a kind of... I've only read the first one. Uh, ev- all the sort of episodes sort of ended in a very happy, optimistic way. And I felt that they often ended too easily or in kind of too quick a resolution i'm not saying it's a good thing about becky chambers writing but i am saying that i suspect an enormous people enormous segment of her fan base think it is a good feature of her writing yes and you're right i probably shouldn't say this is like for people who like chambers because they probably won't like it no like because i i love becky chambers and i loved the vanished birds and i think the parallels you've identified are why i love both i only started making a note of what i was reading in october so i may have read other books but as far as i can tell the only book i have read that is um in the running is piranesi and i enjoyed it a great deal i would definitely nominate it in in a position of almost complete ignorance but i have read a lot of other hugo nominated and hugo winning books and i think it's certainly i would certainly be happy to see it on the ballot um the other book i thought might have been a 2020 book turned out to be a late 2019 book so that's a bit sad um I'll probably read some others, but I haven't done yet. I wanted to pick up a point John made about the N.K. Jemison maybe being a not very good fix-up to say that that has not stopped books from winning the best novel, Hugo, in the past. Oh, no. Um, many fine, well, no, lots of Hugo winners started out as short <laughs> stories and did not gain anything by being expanded to novel length. It's a very common thing. And I will also say that Spania 
um, Hispania really dislikes the book Flowers for Algonon because it was expanded from a shorter work, and I love that book. So it might also be that Hispania is more sensitive to the issues that arise as a result of that transition than other uh, readers. Do you want to know it's pronounced Algonon or not? Meh. No one I have seen who has read the Jemison has said that they think it deserves a nomination. Had you read the short story of Flowers for Algernon before you read the novel? No. Yeah, that's the point, isn't it? Because you read the short story, you go, this is fantastic. And then you read the novel and go, that's the short story, but at three times the length. It's not the point I was trying to make because Hispania has also not read the short story of the Jemison. Ah, so the, the Jemison might be bad even apart from being a fix-up. Art is subjective. Our <laughs> listeners may or may not enjoy the Jemison. All I can do is report the opinions my loved ones have had on it because I have also not read it. I think that's all for books. I think that is the kind of level I wanted to discuss books at. Oh, one before we move on. Uh, listeners, if you have um, read any books from 2020 or have heard about any books that people are discussing with a view to nominating, please write in and let us know because I, for one, would love to read and get a kind of head start on the eventual shortlist and maybe have some um, outraged reactions that things I loved did not end up on the shortlist. Uh, so please do let get in touch. I think... We should say not just books. Tell us what you're nominating and why, particularly things that other people might not have thought of in any category, not just books, so that we can go and check it out while there's still time to nominate. I, I, yes, that's a good point. I think it's just that I feel way more informed about TV and movies than I do about books. I would say specifically, I feel a bit underinformed about uh, particularly indie games. And I do like playing indie games. If you've played any particularly good little video games that came out in 2020 um, that we might like to play with a view to nominate, then please let us know, particularly because I would like the like slate of nominations for uh, the new category to be really, really good. We should have a discussion about that. Sorry, Mark. Yeah, I just like to mention video games on every podcast we do now. Sorry, Mark. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, this is a perfect example of how Mark has engaged with us in a way that has changed our narrative and tone, uh, thus confirming that we are an interactive experience. <laughs> One of the things that's happened as a result of us not spending as much time hanging out with each other this year is that people aren't having as many of those conversations where they go oh what are you reading i'm reading this it's great have you read x it's brilliant um and i think that we've not got quite as much of a general buzz going on amongst our friends about what is good and so we probably need to do that quite deliberately this year one thing about this last year is that we're starting to see fewer blockbusters um so there are blockbusters, but they're just being kept in mothballs until the theatres reopen. And so um, this might give a chance for more considered and thoughtful drama to be nominated. Um, this is happening in movies already because the, the cinemas are closed. It's not happening so much in TV. At the moment, we're still seeing TV that's coming out of the woodwork because it was filmed before um, everything went tits up but that over the next year we're going to see this effect in tv as well and as i like thoughtful cerebral science fiction i'm really looking forward to seeing some of it pop up in the nominations and not always have to compete with some giant 
explosive superhero thing um so yeah i think i think you're right about blockbuster movies um i actually uh disagree uh on tv um i think the reason we're not seeing um excuse me um the reason we're not seeing blockbuster movies is because the economics of releasing a blockbuster um don't work you don't have enough people going to cinemas and um you don't have enough subscribers on streaming video uh you can just look at tenet which was the only blockbuster that came out and it did not do very well you look at how much money milan made sorry you look at how much money mulan made on disney plus it didn't make much money um so you can't release these big tentpole movies and make your money back so they're kind of being delayed and delayed and delayed with tv the business model for tv is very much to attract people to streaming services which is why we had stuff like the mandalorian and star trek discovery prior to covid and i don't see a reason why they can't keep filming those especially stuff like the mandalorian which is a very small number of actors and i would expect them to be filming those uh kind of with with various safety restrictions i know they're filming um mythic quest and ted lasso um seasons in exactly the same way just with a lot more masks and hand washing so i think i don't think it's the problems of making it that are causing the shift i think it's the problems of getting people to to watch it that it is um <laughs> and i have picked a time when allison must stand so i can keep talking about how allison is wrong about everything Ba-ha-ha. uh liz i think that i could probably argue with you about movies because warner brothers have for instance said their slates are all going to come out on streaming i think some stuff will come out as a lost leader on streaming um but I was also going to say for TV, I think I've seen some estimates of how much extra it costs to film with COVID precautions, and it's somewhere between 20 and 50% extra. So I do think that means that shows would, which would be viable pre-COVID are not viable to be filmed under COVID precautions. I think one, one example of that was Glow on Netflix, where they suggested that the problem might be that you cannot film a wrestling show under COVID precautions without it costing you a lot, lot extra. So I think it's also going to depend on the show. Um, I think while Alison is uh, unable to comment, I could push back a bit on, you know, what sort of cerebral things you would like to see in Best Dramatic Presentation short form. Because I would know that in the past few years, we've had The Expanse, which I think is a cracking piece of space opera. We've had uh, Watchmen. We've had, you know, a Dirty Computer and Splendor and Misery. I mean, we've had The Good Place, which is basically a comedy about philosophy. So I think there is some good cerebral stuff already being nominated. I'm not sure you're going to see a great big shift in the next few years because already there. You should probably give Alison the right to reply now. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kind of fine with not getting the right to reply. Um, but I do... I don't... I, Thinking about it while I was standing up, I'm not sure there is a place for more cerebral movies, though Though there are still some people making making quite thoughtful films on small budgets and they might have a space. But most of those people are working in television now, as you say. And I worry that The Expanse is very good because it's like, isn't there like five seasons of it? I really want somebody to tell me a fantastic science fiction story in an hour or two. I don't really want to spend 60 hours getting that story you should watch the expanse it's very good yeah you may you may not really be the target audience for television (laughs) 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 um i I could go on to say that one 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 film that i have heard people saying very good things about is uh, amazon's the 
Vast of Night. Let me just check the title of that. The Vast of Night, which is apparently a... Um, the Vast of Night 2019. Yes, but I think it that was 2019 in uh, film festivals. And so it counts under the wide release in 2020. And it is 90 minutes long and has six cast members and is apparently kind of a self-contained kind of slightly old school science fiction story. Oh, I've not heard of that. I'll have to watch it. I think, and perhaps I am off base, but the film I am most, or sorry, not the necessarily the film, because obviously best dramatic presentation long form takes a variety of, 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 of forms. Um, well, long forms. Um, the thing I am most excited to nominate in best dramatic presentation long form is Palm Springs, the film um, which I believe is shortly coming to UK streaming, but has not been hitherto available, starring Andy Samberg and Kristen Milioti. If you haven't seen it, I would thoroughly recommend it. It is fantastic, and it is squarely a genre movie, so I really hope it gets nominated. I I think it sounds great, but there is no way for me to legally watch that film, so I have not watched it. Soul, just slipping in there on Disney Plus on Christmas Day, um, cannot fault its... Um genre credentials yet another film that there is no way for me to legally watch do you not have disney plus disney plus is not launched in my country and has no estimated launch date yet and another thing that i saw in a cinema was wonder woman 84 which i don't know whether will get nominated um i really liked wonder woman 84 despite the fact that it has some plot points which don't make a whole bunch of sense but i get the impression the internet at large didn't and it's not the first time i have liked a thing and other people haven't um but um Yep, uh, I don't know whether that will get nominated. But it is a film th- that was famous that came out in 2020, so it may well. I think that is a film that I could watch, actually, but I'd have to go to the cinema. I assume Hulu is not available in Thailand. No. Mm, fair enough. Hulu is available in the US only, as far as I know. So I expect yeah. maybe some of the stuff on Hulu is going to come to start this new Disney expansion streaming service or something. And I mean, I do expect Disney Plus to launch, but they... Basically, uh, Thailand was not in the first wave or the second wave of launches. I think we'll probably get it sometime in Mm. 2021, but it's not here yet. Um, This is not going to be a problem for the vast majority of the Hugo voting uh, electorates. Probably not. Although I would guess a surprising number of them uh, will be in Australia and New Zealand this year. Yes, yes, possibly. Um, Good point. But I will Um, say... We're getting Palm Springs on Amazon Prime, but not yet. Ooh, and one thing I can watch is Amazon Prime. Yeah, I knew it was coming to something. So I, I think most of our people will not be able to watch it legally. Well, if it's going to Amazon Prime, then most people will, because it'll probably be like um, a worldwide release on Amazon Prime yeah, but outside of the US. Um, I, I just hope, I hope, I would strongly encourage people track a copy down and watch it prior to nominations. Hopefully that's on Amazon Prime. Um, but um, yes, I would thoroughly recommend it. It is a fantastic movie. I discovered from one of my tech bloggers um a website called letterboxd which everyone else might have known about for ages but is a place where you list and share your films please add me i want friends it's a social network for movies i have been on it for ages but i've only just started reviewing movies please friend me i have no friends there i'm feeling very lonely one of my 2021 themes is to watch more movies and so i have been watching a movie every week so far this year and i have um i have been enjoying kind of working out what i think about them and writing a little bit of a review uh so it's been nice i like that it has i mean obviously i could do this perfectly well in notes 
it's got several different lists so i can keep lists of movies that are available on amazon prime and that are available on netflix and that are available on disney plus and that are available in full on youtube even though they probably shouldn't be that was the 24th episode of the octothought podcast and it's goodbye from me it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me Because I've got no games to nominate, I think. So I would like people to tell me games to nominate because uh, I keep playing old games. The two the two that came up, I think, were Star Wars Squadrons and Animal Crossing uh, in previous episodes. Um, but I'll be interested to see if people submit less um, massive games. Yeah, I mean, I don't have a Switch and I'm rubbish at shooty X-Men games. So you should get a Switch. Switch is great. Not made of money, John. Bought a PlayStation this year. No, but you live in a country that's in not, it, it, very cheap and you have enough money <laughs> to buy a Switch. So uh, maybe get a Switch, Liz. Yeah, let me look at the price of Switches in Thailand. I actually don't know the price of Switches in the UK. Ah, no, that's fair. That's fair. Please all send 48 Switches to Liz. <laughs> <laughs> Please join our new Patreon so that Liz can buy a Switch. <laughs> I've discovered the anim- uh, the Nintendo Switch has a mere 50% markup in Thailand. So, how much is it in how much is it in pounds? Uh, about 350. Far. I mean, that's still I can't remember how much I paid for mine. It's, um, and it, that is the like, Animal Crossing one because I can't find a non-Animal Crossing one which may be cheaper. <laughs> uh, fair enough. I, I don't think that's more than you'll pay for the Animal Crossing one in the UK. It's 240 quid on uh, Argos. I had to look it up and check. Oh, okay. Fine. All right. Ah, I see. Hang on. Allow me, This is not for podcast. Allow me to share with you my method of tracking movies. This is a spreadsheet. Um, it is categorised by watched and unwatched. John is having a movie party in Google Sheets. Jesus. The theme music for this episode was Fanfare for Space by Kevin MacLeod at Incompetech.com used under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 licence. This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.